Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 232, and today's guest is Tiffany Kelly, founder and CEO of CuraStory. The world of sports and media has been radically changing. Not to date myself, but I remember back in college, it seemed like ESPN was continuously on as it was our go-to for breaking news and SportsCenter gave us the scores and highlights from the day prior. Now you just go to Twitter and other social media outlets if you need to find out what happened or to catch the highlights from a game. Also, as part of this evolution, athletes are building their own personal brands and engaging with their fans through social media. Even college athletes can now earn money from their name, image, and likeliness. Tiffany's experience in the sports industry gave her a front row view of where things were heading, and she discovered a need in the market to build a company around this trend. If athletes are now content creators, they need an easy way to create this content, and once they build up a following, they need an easy way to monetize it. Thus, Kira Story was born, a video creation and monetization platform that is initially targeting athletes, but the company certainly has ambitious plans to eventually grow to other categories. Kira Story recently announced a new $2.1 million round of funding, which included Lightspeed, Techstars, Randy Zuckerberg, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around the evolution of sports and media, Tiffany's background growing up and how she discovered the world of sports analytics, all the details on her role as part of the sports analytics team at ESPN and the origination of the Fan Happiness Index, the aha moment that led Tiffany down the path of starting CuraStory and the company's progress to date, advice for diverse founders on raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's hard to believe that we have over 200 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com backslash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. I certainly appreciate your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Tiffany. Tiffany, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about uh, creators, creating content, which is a lot of what I do these days, whether it's the podcast or videos. I spend a lot of time making content, which is so much fun. Uh, but you know, you're in this world where you know we're going to talk a lot about your company, which is the, which just announced a, a new round of funding, which is exciting. But uh, to kick things off, I want to talk about the paradigm of what's happening in the world of media and sports, and then you have these other pieces like the NCAA now allows student athletes to monetize their name, their image, their likeliness. So it's just like a storm of activity right now, what athletes are doing on social. So how has that affected the world of like media and sports and what athletes are doing today? Yeah, good question. I, I noticed it when I was at ESPN, actually, things are just moving away from traditional media conglomerates and just becoming more decentralized and people wanting to become content creators and doing their own content. Um, I went on TV a few times, which was pretty cool to talk about some of the metrics that I built at ESPN, but our own talent were kind of renegotiating their own contracts with ESPN because they wanted to be able to do their own content on the side. And it just became increasingly hard for athletes to just do content with ESPN anymore, which rightly so, like a lot of them had more eyeballs than some ESPN pages. So you're just starting to kind of see this dismantling of traditional media controlling um, 
content and, and it trickling down to individuals and niche media companies, which are just like two to three people. So people consume their content way different. And um, I think as becoming a YouTuber and becoming a podcaster, just as that content continued to grow, I think the NCAA was like, okay, we're, I mean, they got pushed to do it. It's not like they were willingly open to allow it to happen, but I mean, if you have a YouTuber walking around USC that is bringing in millions a month just from YouTube videos, then how can you kind of have a student athlete on the same campus not being able to do the same thing? So um, it has been happening since the age of social media. We've just finally gotten to the point of creators being where people consume their content over traditional media companies. And it's starting to take shape. There's a uh, newsletter I subscribe to, uh, Axio Sports, which is done by Kendall Baker, and it's phenomenal. If anyone listening needs a daily digest of things you need to know about sports, I highly recommend it. It plugs me into everything. Um, but so he, it was very timely today. He talked about this whole topic with the NCAA ruling and how it's starting to take shape where um, the Big Ten athletes, there was a, a, a research done by Open Doors that Big Ten athletes have the most in terms of endorsement so far. Um, there's a new company that just popped up that's supporting you know, fans to connect with, uh, athletes from the Florida Gators called the Gator Collective. There's a UCLA basketball player named Jalen Clark that has his own yeah. cryptocurrency. So there's like all these crazy things that are going on right now with, uh, especially like when I look at the sports, you know, the professional sports leagues, like what the NBA has been doing to embrace this next evolution of, you know. Yeah. It's crazy. So it's exciting. There's so many, there's so many content creators and the NBA has, has been amazing, which is why we have a deal with the players association, a partnership with them. Some of the top content creators that are in the league that you can think of are on our platform. Um, so yeah, I, athletes are just, they're realizing that they have control over their own narrative and they can actually do their own media. Um, it just takes a little bit, I mean, it just takes a little bit more time. If you're an individual or a creator, you won't have the resources that ESPN has because they literally have thousands of people dedicated to selling content, dedicated to creating content, dedicated to editing it, and dedicating it to distribution and omnichannel. So Cura Story just allows for creators to do that at scale um, if it's just them by themselves. It's a very exciting time. So, well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, go Tigers. I <laughs> I moved there when I was, I think I was five. Um, and my dad, the professor at, professor at LSU, we were just a big sports family. Um, my dad swam in college, was in like Sports Illustrated. I think he was actually on like the first black national champions at Morehouse, um, which is like pretty crazy. And, and swimmers at Morehouse, from what I learned, were they, they were like the elite team it was like, they were know, like being part of the basketball team, football team and swimming was the thing at, at Morehouse. Yeah. I think there's actually a movie about it. It's called pride with, um, Oh, what's his name? Terrence Howard. So that entire movie I think is about just like the era that my dad swam in. Um, and 
So yes, so huge sports family. My brother played basketball in college. Uh, my mom also played basketball. I played volleyball. So just sports was kind of just the bond between my family. And um, <laughs> that is what majority of my life was. I didn't have tea parties. I was the type of person playing <laughs> football outside of my brother. So, um, and that just kind of made me just get on this tear and just staying in the sports industry and wanting to have my life be centered around sports. So how did you make that segue in terms of academics to study, you know, sports analytics, which, yeah, you know, it's, it's not super common. It's becoming more common, but it wasn't super common. You know, it's kind of a, a newer piece of sports. Yeah. Um, good question. I think I was in high school trying to figure out what I wanted to do in sports. Like I, people were telling me about marketing and um, people were telling me, oh, you should like go on TV and like be a host and kind of do that whole thing. Um, but it wasn't until I actually job shadowed the New Orleans Hornets. Um, I just went everywhere inside, everywhere inside the arena that night. I think they were playing the Bulls. Um, and Monty Williams is still there. So um, I, the PR staff that I was supposed to work with that night, they actually were like super busy with Will Ferrell. So they like stuck me with the stats guys. Will Ferrell was in attendance that night. <laughs> yeah, Will Ferrell was in attendance <laughs> that night. He's very funny. funny. I can confirm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, they stuck me with the stats guys. They're like, hey, we don't have time. And I'm like this like 16, 7 year old high schooler. I was just like trying to get my foot in the door and like see what's going on working with the front office and or just like with the team in general. And so they literally just like, here's the stats guys. And they brought me to a closet. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And just these like three dudes just like on a computer looked up at one point to say hello and just like went back to their computer. And I just followed them around the entire night. But it was crazy because every single person knew them by name. Like Monty Williams knew them by name. Del Demps, who was still the GM at the time, knew them by name. Just like everyone in the arena knew who they were. And I'm just like, what do you do? <laughs> like, why, why do all these people know who you are? And you literally have a closet that's an office space. Um, and that's just kind of how I started looking into and researching sports analytics. Like on the drive back home from New Orleans, I told my dad, I was like, I'm going to be a sports analytics person, like, whatever, whatever <laughs> that meant. Um, but just crunching numbers, like running reports at halftime, offensive, defensive efficiency, plus minus, like that is kind of the basis, like high level overview of sports analytics. There's so many other things and building algorithms and actually doing, building the models to predict certain things. but. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just got the a taste of it that night and that kind of just set me up for what I wanted to do in the future. And I I also was coming from an angle as like being a woman and a person of color. I'm like, okay, like I can do this because it's just data and numbers at the end of the day and people would pay attention to me too if I was able to able to produce some like awesome numbers. So pretty like heavy stuff for a 17-year-old you thinking about, but um yeah, that is kind of how I, I started on that, on that path. And then how did you end up landing at ESPN? Yeah, I, 
So going along that path, I went to college for it. I actually had to kind of create my own major like degree a little bit. I did sports management, but I knew I needed the technical skills to be able to do sports analytics. So um, junior, senior year, I was just fully focused on computer programming, statistics, like one, two, and three, calculus, one, two, and three, just like knee deep in, in that stuff. And my sports prep professors were looking at me like I was crazy. Just like, what are you actually doing? Why are you taking all these classes? Um, so I ended up graduating and I went home for a year. I was interviewing actually with about 10 to 15 front offices. It's tough. I mean, there's only a few, I feel like maybe every MBA front office has a sports analytics team now. At the time, that wasn't the case. Um, and baseball was way advanced. Like they, they've been in sabermetrics and analytics for a while, but football was pretty fresh. Hockey was also pretty fresh too. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like I had a ton of teams to choose from. I also wanted to only do the NBA too, because I just love basketball, but um, it was tough. I interviewed for about a year. Um, I didn't get placed anywhere. It was me, 20 year old going up against like 30, 40 year olds with their PhD. So uh, that was a thing, but I eventually, um, someone told me about the MIT Sloan sports analytics conference. And I was like, okay, let me go here. Cause there's a big career fair and networking. And I found out that ESPN actually had a hackathon um, where you're literally in a room coding for six hours uh, and they give you the prompt. Um, and it's just up to you to produce something. So, but it's funny. I, I got offered ESPN actually probably about three or four weeks after I presented at the hackathon. Um, the prompt for that year was measuring the immeasurable. Um, so they were going to give you data and you had to measure something that wasn't already measured. Um, and I was thinking, about okay like how do you measure like heart or hustle or something that athletes talk about and scouts talk about so much or like vision right like things that I feel like when you're in the basketball or just in the community of sports there are just certain intangibles that athletes have that are just really hard to put to quantify so that is kind of what I focused my project on so I actually built this it's called the hustle difficulty complex we're getting super deep right now, but I built that. This is interesting though. And, I, was, I was wondering what you did. You actually built. Yeah. So I built that and it was basically, I was calculating how many points produced on the offensive end and then how many points were allowed defensively just by like hustling. Um, and so there were five metrics that the NBA came out with probably about a year before that of like loose balls recovered, charges drawn, um, shots deflected. Like there were five statistics that kind of, I guess, gave shape to an athlete hustling. Um, so I, I just took that and I kind of built this crazy model from it. And of course, Patrick Beverly was like at the top, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I built that, presented on it. And it's funny because also why ESPN hired me, because one of the analysts like pulled me aside and asked me a question. I, I didn't take the whole six hours like, um, because the data that they gave us, I actually already had like the data from working at the Miami Heat. 
So I knew what I was already going to be looking at. They just gave us a different season. Um, so I already had the model built out and ready to go. I just like input in the data and like the numbers spit out. And so I was just chilling like the rest of the time. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, How did you do that so I fast? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and so, and that's one of the things that they mentioned. They're just like, did you, did you do something before? And I was just like, oh yeah, totally. I built the entire model <laughs> right before. Um, and so, yeah, ESPN offered me that, offered me a job. They actually created a position for me. They were looking for like a PhD manager level sports analyst. And they kind of created an associate position since I was like fresh out of college. Which, so, uh, I don't know if this was your model or if you were part of the team, I couldn't tell, but you were part of the fan happiness index. And I saw you, you know, talking, uh, on ESPN about it, like the creation, like the seven variables, you gave an on-air explanation. So what was that all about? Yes, that was my first project into ESPN. Um, which is just pretty crazy. That well, it's like measuring the unmeasurable fan happiness. Like that sounds yeah. perfect for you. I was super excited. And it's so funny that you mentioned that. That's exactly why I like wanted to take it on. Um, I was just super excited because it was still kind of like within the wheelhouse niche that I was, I guess, building out for myself as a new sports analyst. Um, but yeah, two hours into my first day, um, my former manager came up to me and was like, Hey, like, we just got this project from, cause like within ESPN, anytime analytics needed to be done, it came to our team. Um, so whether it was the ESPN magazine or college game day, like whatever it was, they always came to our team. So the magazine came to us and they were looking at doing something called the fan happiness index. Um, but they need a model built for it. Um, and so my boss asked me if, if I would be interested in doing it. And they're just like, don't spend too much time. We just want to see like what you can do. Um, they just talked to me, like talk me through what you would actually build. And so I talked him through it and he was just like, okay, perfect. And I spent maybe hmm, a couple months building it. Um, it's just in time for like August, September. Um, got over a million views within 24 hours. It just became this huge thing. They wanted to like, recreate it for every single sport not just college football <laughs> um but I really went into the mind of a fan like what being a huge LSU football fan that was actually my first sporting event when I was like maybe nine with my dad and my mom um just being a huge LSU fan I'm like what do I actually care about um and so I'm just like I can't care if we beat Alabama every year. So like right. there was, there was a rivalry metric that was built. Um, I care about also sentiment analysis. Like what are fans actually saying on Twitter too? Like we wanted to actually bake in what people were thinking. So we kind of were assigning positive and negative language on Twitter. And we, we looked at just like the hashtags that were used. So like, um, we didn't use like we didn't use the hashtags that were specific to the program, the athletic department. We used like the hashtags that the fans actually use. Um, so we looked at that, and then was our coach going to be fired? And of course, like, are you performing well? Then historic. So we looked at performance over historical time, like over a historical period of time. Um, so yeah, those are their main. Oh, and then the coolest one was probably panic. So. Um, 
how apprehensive do you get like during the game? Like, are you actually performing each down how you're supposed to be performing? So we looked at like our end game win probability chance versus each down Mm -hmm. um, where you were compared to the beginning of the game. So, and then looked at like negative tweets during that time as well. So like, um, yeah, those are the main, main, it's a lot actually, but that is what was built for fan happiness. Um, and I just really thought about like what I cared about as an LSU fan, which, which is why I think it performed so well because Bama wasn't at the top. Um, which was so a that lot got Bama of fans. It's it creates that competitive sports, like yeah, like like anytime. Green was like super high that the <laughs> two years that we did it because they were just like performing really well. And I mean, it wasn't just a top teams list. It was are your fans actually happy? And it was interesting because that was actually a point of conversation on the air where like since Bama wasn't first, they were just like, okay, Bama's actually just like pissed because they're not winning. Right. Like they're yeah. not. If they don't have a championship, they're pissed. So it just it the calibration and the standard like the standard deviation changes from team to team based on what they've accomplished. And so we just tried to like put that into a metric. And um that is kind of what my ESPN career was like revolved around, to be completely honest, which is awesome. It's so awesome because yeah, you got lots of recognition from being on air and you know the SEC network was mentioning it during their programming. So uh yeah. You know, great job at ESPN. What prompted you to move on then obviously start a company? Yeah, I think I've always had an entrepreneur uh, bug inside of me. Um, I noticed what was happening with traditional media and creators while I was at ESPN. Um, It was interesting. It was kind of this like bifurcation between like the lifers at ESPN that were like, 20 plus years like cable forever and then the just new millennials gen z workers at espn that just could understand what was actually happening like social media like we just you can't really ignore it anymore and just um like streaming services like netflix and just like those types of things that were actually happening it's like how does espn where they've made majority of their money with cable. How does, how does, how do you continue the legacy of ESPN moving forward to how media was changing? So I was, I was watching that all happen in real time, which was really interesting to watch. Um, and like, even since I was working on the content side, even some of our talent were like canceling or re-upping negotiation contracts to be able to include them being doing their own content on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then athletes weren't really doing content with us anymore because they just were posting to their social media channels. So all of this was going on as I'm there. And I'm, I mean, I'm just taking note of it, right? Like I'm just thinking about it. Um, I ended up leaving ESPN January, 2019, moving to New York full time. Cause I, Bristol's rough. I will just be straight up. Bristol, <laughs> Connecticut was really yes. hard for me. Um, so I moved to New York full time and was kind of working with some startups up here in New York. And I just got the startup bug, but around May, 2019 is when the NCAA came out and said they were thinking about student athletes monetizing. And that's when I think everything just clicked for me because what I observed at ESPN, NCAA athletes would now be able to monetize just normally, like 
any other person would on social media. Um, and just kind of seeing the problems that happened at ESPN and, and having that information came out, that is when I just started thinking about, okay, something needs to be built for this. And we eventually got to what Cure Story is probably like the end of that year after I talked to a ton of athletes and YouTubers and fitness creators within my network. Um, but I don't know, you're probably familiar with anchor.fm. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was talking to an MLS player in the fall of 2019 and he was just like, yeah, like I actually have a podcast of my own. I use anchor.fm. It's super seamless. I've monetized a few of my podcasts, which is awesome. Um, if this existed for video, like I would do it in a heartbeat. I'm like, mm-hmm. does it not exist for video? And he was just like, no, it doesn't exist for video. I was like, cool. That's what we need to build. <laughs> so that is literally what Cure Story is. We allow creators to upload video content and they just, they edit it, add music, and then they just get automatic ad spot direction from brands um, to monetize their video. So they can either accept the ad spot that they'll eventually record or they're, they'll decline it. If they decline it, then we just keep matching them to other campaigns that are running um ads for ad spots um but if they accept it they record whatever direction the brand says they put it in their video and then they post with one click to youtube igtv facebook watch and then we're adding tiktok in the next few weeks um so it's long form video like anything above a minute and it's just all seamless which is amazing you it's have, all native right like the yeah the athlete all native. Of, yeah because it's like the problem that i think you know that we all do is if you're on YouTube and the ad starts, you just, as soon as you can click through the ad, it's like skip. Right. So they're not able to monetize because they don't get the, like what's the length of time that someone needs to watch a ad to have it count towards monetization. Good question. I think, well, it's, it's past the skip ad. Yeah. It's past that. Um, I think it's, if it's not the full thing, it might be, Google actually also has algorithms for this. So they, which is what we get in our API, but they tell you like the amount of watch time, right? So they calculate how much they charge a brand based on the amount of watch time past that skip ad feature. Um, And then that's what they're paying the creators. But the beautiful thing is what we're doing. There's three main reasons Um, we charge or we charge more. So all of our videos start at $30 where per a thousand views, whereas YouTube starts at 18. Um, We take less, we only take 30%, YouTube takes 50. Um, And then it's native, so the watch time is better. So people actually listen to the creator's ad versus a YouTube or platform ad. Um, So that's kind of the beauty in, in what we're doing. Creators are doing Cure story offline. Like they're trying to find brands and like just get their own native ad spots or they're working with agencies or what have you. But of course, when you do that, you have to pay an agency a leg and an arm, an arm and a leg. Sorry. Um, and if you're a creator, you don't have time to be doing the sales funnel. Zero of, time. Yeah. Zero time. Exactly. Zero you got to create. <laughs> you got to create content and edit it. You probably outsource editing, to be completely honest. But um, yeah, you really just only have time to brainstorm content and create content, which which actually takes a ton of time, to be completely honest. So we just streamline the entire funnel in our platform. They're still able to edit them. They can, they have to edit them themselves, but we even still have like 
quick, easy drag and drop editing. So they don't even have to think about getting like a video engineer or anything like that. And the video, uh, the platform is easy to use. Obviously the you're providing that sales process, but what I thought was also super interesting is if you're a student athlete, you don't necessarily have all the gear to do these videos. So you actually will send them, you know, some equipment to do the creation too. Yes. Um, that was spearheaded by our head of customer success, Liliana. And we just kept hearing and calls how much equipment cost. Um, and how expensive it was and NCAA athletes kind of removing that barrier to entry. Um, Cause I mean, being completely honest, doing a video is way more expensive than doing a podcast. Then uh, you just need more equipment. So we kind of teamed up with GoPro and we have, we have two kits. So we have a professional kit, which is 50 bucks retail value, like 1500. I think there's a camera tripod backdrop, two lights, a mic, um, a head strap, chest strap for if the creator wants to go hands-free. Um, and then, cause we have like a lot of snowboarders and Olympians in our platform as well. Um, and then we, and like bought like fighters boxing too, if they want to have like a first person view. And then our starter kit, which is just, if you want to use your phone. So all of that, except the GoPro material. So just tripod backdrop lighting and the microphone. Um, to be able to kind of film content it's quality content like actually a ton of nba players are using gopro cameras just to shoot their own content like javel mcgee who's a big content creator he uses gopro so um you'll be able to shoot quality content and honestly if user generated content that is just perform first person view or um something that seems authentic and real performs way better than like overproduced stuff. One of the challenges that entrepreneurs have when you're building out a marketplace like you are is chicken and the egg, like, right? Like to get the advertisers, but there's no actual creators yet, or do you get the creators and then hopefully get the advertisers once they see the, you know, the type of segments they can participate in. Like, how did you get that started? Yeah. Um, Good question. We, what did, I feel like we went to, we did both at one time. So we were getting creators and we were getting brands and then we would just do this back and forth. Like, Oh, we have these types of creators come on the platform. Oh, we have these types of brands, upload your videos, secure a story. Um, just cause we're, cause what we do is we match campaigns that brands are running to videos. We don't, kind of match brands to creators, like an influencer marketplace platform. Um, so we're a little bit different in that way, but kind of as brands were like super interested in coming on and creators were coming on and interested in uploading, we started putting rev share partnerships in place. So the NBA Players Association um, and kind of these agencies or associations that had creators where we lock in a certain amount of video upload, uploads month over month. So we made sure and just hacking it that way, which was kind of from my exclusive access and why we specifically focused on sports and fitness careers at the beginning. Um, Cause we were, a, we could be able to monopolize that segment of creators before moving to like beauty and different types of, um, of creators. So sports, fitness, gamers, 
are on the platform right now. And we just have a ton of retro partnerships where we lock in like 300 videos month over month and just pay them back like a seven to 10% net rev share. Um, that way we always have supply in and brands are just coming on and just running campaigns based off of that. And we're doing the same thing on the brand end too, locking in 250K or X amount of campaign spend for the quarter. Um, so we know, okay, we have at least a hundred videos that's for sure going to be monetized. So, um, those are kind of the, the hacks that we've done to get both sides onto, onto the platform. There's a lot of momentum with Cure Story. Like you just uh, wrapped up Techstars Sports Accelerator, which is headed up by Jordan Flegel, who uh, I know Jordan from Coach Up in Boston back in the day. And it's been awesome that he's been running that accelerator for Techstars. He's very, very plugged into that world of, of sports and had Steph Curry as an investor for his startup. So, uh, and what, you know, you announced a new round of funding uh, over $2 million from Lightspeed tech stars, Randy Zuckerberg. So it's just like an amazing roster of investors. Yet you built everything before raising the most recent round, very lean. It was like, I think I read somewhere, it was just like yeah. 400,000. So how did you get to that point where, you know, it's, that's a very lean amount to build what you've built thus far? Yeah. Oh man. Um, I think building a team that's actually bought in is really important. Um, now we can afford like, way more stuff now which is nice but and and like amazing hires that are going to cost us like 150 180k but um i think our founding team is phenomenal because they were so bought in and all of us were doing contract work on the side to pay our bills and just barely paying ourselves minimum wage um we have equity in the company and so I feel like, and this is actually something Jordan talks about a lot when you're kind of building the first founding team and Shane, Liliana, um, people that actually can see what it's going to be. And I think that's also up to the founder too, to really be able to sell people on the vision um, and what you're building long-term and just get people excited. I was reading a meme that, the founder CEO's job is to smile through war. And I feel like that's <laughs> literally what I do. Like shit's going crazy. And it's just like, yeah, we got this. Like this is a long-term vision. And, um, and just letting the team know that they have value. So burn was so low because burn was extremely low and we had to keep it low to be able to get to the next milestone. Um, which was either locking in a deal or locking in the next race. Um, so yeah, it was just doing contract work on the side. I was doing data science consulting work for a really long time until um, we were able to afford to pay ourselves full time. Um, so yeah, that, and it's funny, one of my really good friends just got a job at Next Ventures um, as an investor there. And his investment memo was on us. It was like a 20 page document. It was pretty intense, but um, he, in his like notes, he, he's like, why I would invest in this company is honestly the team and what they've been able to do with like no money. Because I think that's what really shines through in a founder is just when things hit the fan, can you 
maneuver and do what you need to do with barely any money in the bank and not just throwing money at problems, but actually like figuring certain things out and, and being frugal when you need to be frugal. So um, yeah, that it's been a knife fight up until this point. <laughs> so where, where's the business now as far as, you know, creators and where, like you said, the future vision, like where is it to own every category of creators? Like what's, what's the, yeah. kind of the long-term? Yeah. Great question. So we're at about, I think close to 300 creators now. Um, active uploading videos into the platform still within sports and fitness niche we're more sports based right now um but over the next few months as we close up this like as we close this funding and over the next few months um we're gonna stop start onboarding more fitness creators and kind of putting partnership in place with companies like mind body or um kind of these companies like peloton nordic track and Honestly, there's so many now like at-home fitness companies where mm -hmm. that are led by fitness instructors that actually don't pay them very well. So essentially figuring out B2B partnerships there where Cure Story is a part of the toolkit that they allow their fitness instructors to do. Um, but essentially letting that segment of creators, which there's so many on YouTube, just fitness creators just doing at-home workout videos. It's actually pretty wild. Um, and then I would say after that would be beauty. So yeah, the, the long-term vision is to be able to grow to every type of creator. Um, but the probably the, the sweet spot that you have to nail in the beginning of a marketplace before you just grow is just focusing on one segmentation before you move to the next and monopolizing that segment. Um, so Brands are able to come to Cure Story and just run campaigns without any worries because they know that we're matching relevant sports and fitness shows to them right now. Because the only brands that we have on right now are e-commerce, CPG, sports books, fitness, health and wellness, those types of brands that actually want to be monetizing native ads and the types of video shows that we have. Um, so getting that right, getting that perfected and just monopolizing that market. And then beauty will be the next creator type that we go to. And then culinary DIY, like so on and so forth. Um, and I imagine doing that probably about three to six months before a series A um, and just having those data points that way, series A raised will just be pouring gas on the fire and just launching to everybody. I mean, you're hitting the market at the right time. Like when you said the NCAA ruling came out and you started to build a company and you're starting to see the momentum start to take shape. So, uh, you know, timing, yeah, obviously a key, key part of success of a startup. That, and that's 400,000 creators too, by the way, which is pretty crazy. Wow. <laughs> that is absolutely insane. And this is growing by the day. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I think there'll be 150 million by 2031. Um, wow. yeah. And it's funny. There was this article done. Um, I forgot what outlet it was, but about like 30% of the adolescent population in the United States and the United Kingdom wanted to be YouTubers, which was like 16 million. So it's a thing. It's, it's, it's going to continue to be a thing as well. I have two, two teenage daughters and yeah, they don't watch TV. It's all, it's all YouTube. It's and streaming. so crazy, right? It's so crazy. I, I'm like, I'm cusp of Gen Z millennial. 
Uh, my roommate is like hardcore Gen Z, does not turn the TV on. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, what is that? She, she thinks <laughs> is Netflix that is, it's so funny. She thinks Netflix is like fake acting. I'm like, what? She's like, well, it's not real. Like, it's not real. Like, we literally had this conversation. I'm just like, that. That is acting. It's not sense. real. You're right. <laughs> right. That's like an oxymoron. And just used to YouTube videos of just like people being. Yeah, reality. Like just doing. Yeah. So that is, that can confirm that is spot on. That's funny. All right. So we need more diverse founders raising capital. So what what advice would you have for, for, you know, helping solve that challenge? Oh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Cause it's just, it's harder. Like I think I was doing this fundraising boot camp before I went out into market to raise. Um, Jason Ye, Adamant Ventures, he's amazing. He was a partner at Greycroft and also raised like 10 million. Um, he's awesome. It was, I think, probably about a month, two month class. And he was just like, guys, I'm just gonna be straight up. Like if you're a minority founder, person of color, it's just gonna be harder for you. Um, and I think it's just all about networks. It was interesting. I was talking to Zach from Overtime and he was saying how probably 10 of his investors are going to his wedding. Um, And when you think of it like that, when you think of it like, oh, okay, I can get a check if I'm best friends with these people. Like, I think that is the mindset that you have to really be in. And it's tough. I mean, if you're a black founder or Asian American founder and majority of people that have money are like white dudes. It's like, how do you, how do you get in these rooms with these people that have money to unlock that type of capital? That is the type of mindset that you need to be in, I think. And being able to be in tech stars has helped us tremendously as well, unlock more of that capital. Um, Cause it's a network thing at the end of the day. And I think if you run a tight process, if you, have an investor spreadsheet and you have who you need to connect with and you kind of put these strategies in place to be able to like build FOMO naturally and have people back channel and just put yourself in these rooms with these types of people that have the power to write these checks. It'll happen for you eventually. Um, But it's just, it's running a tight process and understanding that you just by being who you are, you won't be able to be in these types of rooms that other people are in. So you just really have to truly work and kind of um, set yourself up for success there. And so that is probably the biggest thing that I would say, and just trying to kind of connect with people and make sure that you're within these networks and groups of people um, that you're able to. What advice would you have for the networking side? Because I think you know, when I was doing my research about your background before the podcast, you seem incredibly just like you were incredibly well networked. And you talked about some of the N- NBA teams that you did work with the heat, the Pelicans, you just shadowed in high school. Um, yeah. You know, you, you know, realized about the MIT Sloan conference being the conference for sports analytics attending that ESPN. Right. So, uh, and then you, you've spoken in multiple conferences and panels. And so how have you, gone about building your net like what advice would you share on how to how to network yeah I think it really is a people industry I I mean 
someone told me that being likable is like half the battle. Um, but I think it's joining things like tech stars. I think it's always looking at something as an opportunity to learn, but to always to make another connection mm-hmm. um, and not and not doing it to get something out of it. I know that seems like super backwards, but um, like doing it to be like, okay, like I need to learn. You have knowledge that I want to learn, but like eventually cool. You could write a check for me down the road. It's, it's really just being likable and kind of putting yourself within tech stars and, and um, within these types of programs that exist for that reason. Um, and just kind of building that. And it does take time. I mean, you're building a network over time, but that is kind of, I guess what I, what I would say, hopefully that helps. Oh, I agree with you because um, you know, for a long time, I ran an executive search firm and you would get introduced to people and you're like, Oh, I'm so busy. I really don't know if I have time. I accept, I never said no. And you take that meeting and you do the coffee or you do the zoom now, whatever. And it could be a half hour where you're like, Oh, immediately nothing happened. But two years down the road, all of a sudden that connection is a valuable connection. So you just, the more that you're learning, cause you're going to learn something in a half hour meeting with somebody. Second, that connection, you never know where it's going to lead to. You never, ever, ever know. And I, that's something that I'm trying to just have my, my daughters absorb too. It's yeah. just like, it's, you know, your, your network is so critical to what doors may open in the future. So I agree with you there. Tiffany, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the good stuff you're doing with your company Cura Story and, you know, continued success. Yes. Thanks so much, Keith. It was awesome. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.